A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. Our cases this week are devastating and they are heartbreaking. They are about parents killing children or trying to kill their children. In California, we have the case of a father charged with intentionally driving his car off the edge of a cliff with his wife and his two children inside. The family miraculously survived the 200-foot drop, but prosecutors say that the man's intent to kill was clear. But first, the tragic story of a Massachusetts mother who jumped out a window in an attempt to kill herself after realizing what she had just done to her three children. Police say that she strangled those babies. The father who came home to find the carnage says his wife was suffering from severe postpartum depression and was in treatment every day. The mother who survived has been charged with murder. We are recording this on Wednesday, February 1st of 2023. Our guest today is Tracy Tambora, a criminal justice professor at the University of New Haven in Connecticut. She is a nationally recognized expert on domestic violence, sexual assault and abuse, and how those crimes are handled by the criminal justice system. Tracy's also a good friend of the show. Welcome back, Tracy. How are you? Thank you so much, Anna. Happy New Year to you and to Will, and I'm happy to be here. Oh, we love it. You know, uh, we know that you're very busy teaching and that um, your your students always have a lot of questions about what's going on in the world in this podcast. So um, I, I just love that. I, I know I sound like an old person when I say this, but I love it when the young people, <laughs> you know, engage with us. Yeah, when I first started coming on your show, they, they I got cool points, not just I've said this before with my own daughter, with the class and they love you Anna so thank oh. you for having me you know you've never asked me to talk at your class I'm just saying <gasps> I didn't know you would do that Anna I okay oh. I'm totally arranging this I'm totally arranging not just the class it's going to be the whole university Oh my gosh, there you go. I, yes, I, wa- I want to speak to the entire student body. I yes. do do that. I do. Last semester, I spoke uh, two universities at Fordham and at Claremont out here. Uh, I do. I love to talk to students and um, it would be my pleasure. Uh, yes, we will set it up through the Criminal Justice Club, which has uh, three or 400 members. And so I, you're, you're coming. You can't get out of it now, Anna. <laughs> A club. I love that. A club. All right, uh, Tracy, let's get to these cases. They're really horrific. And I know that this is this is your your area of strength. But um, sometimes I think there's never going to be an answer or insight when it comes to this level of crime. So our first case is out of Duxbury, Massachusetts, where a mother is charged with the murder of her three children. Her family says she suffered from severe postpartum depression. We know how serious that is. And for a very long time, this is an ailment that was not taken seriously. You know, they're called mommy blues and just, Mm -hmm. you know, labels that really uh, were disrespectful to the pain and suffering that the mother was going through. In this case, we have 32-year-old Lindsay Clancy, and she faces murder charges after allegedly strangling her three kids, ages five three and eight months. Police say after she realized what she had done, she threw herself out a second story window in an attempt to kill herself, but she survived the fall. 
She remains hospitalized and she will be arraigned as soon as she is released from the hospital. Lindsay and her husband, Patrick Clancy, lived on Summer Street in the Boston suburb of Duxbury. Lindsay was a labor and delivery nurse Mm -hmm. at Massachusetts General Hospital and she was on leave, Tracy, to deal with her illness. Mm -hmm. I, I, I feel like... This is just such a tragedy. I can't even imagine, Tracy, what justice looks like in this case. What what could it be? There, there's never going to be justice here. Right. Yeah. This case is, is very interesting, and I think it highlights for me, a professor of criminal justice, one of the most important aspects, you know, things I talk to my students about are how do you achieve justice? On the one hand, you have a horrific event. There are three dead children. There's a grieving husband. There's a grieving community. Individuals need to be held accountable for acts of violence. But on the other hand, the perpetrator in this case has, you know, um, a documented uh, history um, with mental illness, even if it's in the short term because it is postpartum and therefore is going to be at least on a morality scale, maybe not on a legal scale, but on a morality scale, this person is much less culpable. Um, One thing I'd love for your viewers to know is how difficult it is when you're dealing with the, the, the technical term, we call it as filicide. It is when a parent kills a child. Um, believe it or not, American criminal law has struggled with this concept for over 200 years. It, it wasn't always a crime. And you can see if you trace the history of filicide laws in, in America, even before we were America, when we were a colony, British law, the, the, the lawyers, the, the legal scholars, the politicians, they weren't quite sure what to do when a mother killed her young children because there was a recognition that women had this strange, they didn't know how, they didn't have the words then, but that they had this strange reaction to giving birth sometimes, which put them in a very blue or down place. And therefore, they couldn't be held culpable under the law for these deaths. And like I said, this is ebbed and flowed, you see, from the 1700s to the 1800s. By the late 1800s, it stays as a, as a murder, regardless of the state, and leaves it up to the prosecutor to determine, again, is it a manslaughter? Is it a murder? Was it an accident? Is it justified? Doesn't mean her defense attorney may offer a mental uh, illness as a justification or an excuse for the um, murders. Mm-hmm. Her level of moral and legal culpability, I think, is what makes this case interesting. Absolutely, because obviously legally she is. Morally she is, but morally I think we, we as a community, realize that once she becomes, let's say, more clear in her thinking and they are able to perhaps provide her with a little bit more balance medically, Mm-hmm. I think when she realizes everything that has just happened, I don't know how one lives with oneself. And I think the fact that she was in treatment, daily treatment for her illness, that she had taken a leave of absence, that mm-hmm. she was in the medical profession, she had a very noble profession taking care of babies, you know, delivering them. I if anyone understood the severity of her own challenge, it was 
the mother herself. In fact, the father says he asked to work remotely during this time period because mm-hmm. he needed to be home to help his wife and to help the three kids. It, it frightens me that this event, this tragedy happened in a 25 minute window when the husband left the house to go get dinner for the kids. And in that time period, the gates of hell opened. Three babies dead mm-hmm. and a woman trying to kill herself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I am just overwhelmed by the sadness of this story. And look, yeah. yes, absolutely. She must be held accountable. Mm-hmm. I, but again, what does justice look like here? Right. I don't know. No one, no one's ever going to feel whole or right. Right. And accountability could mean, of course, a lot of things. Unfortunately, most of us, when we think about accountability and crime, we think about prison. We, but, but there's a, there's a lot of alternatives to prison depending upon the circumstances. Um, You know, first we need to determine. So the prosecutor has a right to bring charges against her, um, but then her defense is going to have to, decide how are they going to react to this? They can, it's not probably, they can't use a justification defense, like self-defense is a justification. Then they ask the prosecutor, can you please, you know, excuse the charges? So what they might move to is um, an excuse such as temporary insanity. Um, And she may qualify for a temporary insanity um, defense in this case. One thing I do like reader, uh, you know, students, public, anyone to know is a lot of times we think, oh, they're going to use the insanity defense and it's going to be so easy. It's only in less than about 1% of cases can you even enter an insanity defense. It's really hard for the judge to accept that as plausible. Um, So it's very, very uncommon. We'll see if her um, defense team puts that forward. We'll see if that's accepted. Um, other than that, they're going to have to bring expert witnesses to, to attest to her mental state at the time and, and to kind of wrap it all up. We want her accountable, but we want her accountable in a way that makes sense. If, she re- if they prove that she really had no awareness of her current state while she was committing these acts, I do think it becomes hard for um, an expert, and maybe even the general public to think that this warrants prison time. It may warrant her being institutionalized um, uh, for an extended period of time. So, you know, we have to wait to see how this case proceeds. Yes, she definitely from legal has, from a legal perspective. Yes, she has documentation on her side at the very least of a, some form of impairment. Mm-hmm. And um, whether that technically then becomes that legal term of insanity at that time, that will be for the, the courts to decide. So this happened sometime around 6 p.m. on January 24th. Patrick returned home with dinner and he discovered his wife on the ground outside. She had jumped out that window. She reportedly had self-inflicted cuts on her wrists and on her neck. Patrick then calls 911, the police, the paramedics arrive, and then not only do they discover the wife clinging to life, but then they find the babies in the house. So the couple's three children, Cora, Dawson, and Callan, were unconscious with obvious signs of trauma. Police have not gone into detail about what that means. Prosecutors say that the children appeared to be strangled, and they were 
you know, they didn't get into what locations they were in the house. We don't know what horrors the older children may have witnessed. We don't know because if one if one of the younger children were was killed before the old we don't know any of this no. we just know it was horrific right there's there's no way around this so when the babies are discovered um two of them are dead and the third one is clinging so cora and dawson were rushed to a local hospital pronounced dead callan who's eight months old was flown to boston children's hospital And that little baby died three days later on January 27th. Prosecutors issued an arrest warrant for the mother after the first two children died. She remains hospitalized but in police custody. And what we don't know yet is whether she will be charged for the death of the third baby. Most likely she will. If they have filed murder charges for the first two, I can't see why prosecutors would not charge the third one. So... Lindsay's been charged with a total of eight counts so far as of the taping and recording of this podcast. Two counts of murder, three counts of strangulation or suffocation, three counts of assault and battery with a deadly weapon. At the, and again, we don't know about the third baby, Callan. Mm-hmm. So after the passing of the third baby, the father, Patrick Clancy, asked the community to forgive his wife. He said he had forgiven her. And then he released a statement basically saying, quote, the real Lindsay was loving and caring towards everyone. And then he shared memories of the babies. And he said that Cora, for example, wanted to be a doctor and a mama when she grew up, that she loved sloths, unicorns, tea parties, going to lunch with Nana and grandpa and giving people presents. Each child sounds absolutely beautiful. Mm-hmm. Dawson was described as naturally humorous, generous beyond what a typical toddler would be, loved trucks, tracks, tractors, dinosaurs, Paw Patrol, worker guys, and just being outside. And that the little baby was really so easygoing that they called that baby Happy Callan. And I, I think the fact that the father released this statement not only processing his grief and sharing the love of his children, but he asked the community to help him forgive his wife. And I think that's very interesting Mm -hmm. because the police said early on, they were so upset and disturbed by what they saw that the first responders have actually had to take a leave of absence. The horror that they experienced was so overwhelming that they cannot deal with what they responded to. So here they are healing themselves, taking a leave of absence. The community is equally upset. They, they, the whole community is in mourning here. And I find that interesting because we talk about crime and justice. It is, it happens in a community and a community makes the decision. If it's a jury, for example, Mm -hmm. it is a community decision about what is the right thing to do here. So I find that interesting, Tracy, you know, that the father is having this dialogue with the community about what's happened. Yeah. And I mean, to me, it makes a lot of sense, right? Um, This woman doesn't have a history of violence or a history of issues. They seem to be, you know, I've only seen media accounts. I don't, I haven't actually read any 
you know, official case documents. They seem to be a happy couple, um, you know, with three young children, lots of optimism. Um, so right now the father has to be feeling what any of us would is, is that he's, uh, he's surprised, he's taken aback. I would have to imagine having worked with individuals um, who, um, the, you know, their children were, well, I worked with one family in which the child was murdered, but I've worked with many in which there was abuse. The other, the, the other parent, the non-offending parent feels a, a real level of guilt and culpability. So in some way, when he's asking for the community to be patient, to be forgiving, you know, he's, he's also asking it for himself because we are, a, we are a society that naturally then looks to see who else in the scenario was to blame. So I think it makes- Thank you. A, yep. Thank you for that, Tracy, because I read some comments uh, on social media about the charges and about this case. And there was one comment that really stood out and someone wrote, they want the father charged and they want the father held accountable for having left the house and having left her unattended. I'm not sure that I agree with that. Yeah, I mean, I, I as an expert can't you know, offer you know, an opinion without having read it, uh, but I can tell you about cases that are similar you know, if, if there is any, you can be tried as an accessory, even if you're not present, if there is clear and convincing evidence that a reasonable person in your circumstance should have anticipated the outcome. So I don't know if there is enough evidence to suggest that the father was aware that the mother had potentially psychotic tendencies or had potentially such a mental illness that she could not be uh, left alone with the children, okay, perhaps then there is some level of responsibility. However, devoid of that finding, devoid of finding that the father was aware that she was capable of such actions, he's not going to be responsible for that. It, it, it appears, you know, and again, many of us who've had children know or who have been, uh, you know, nurses, doctors, support staff, women after birth, you, you feel sometimes sad, you feel um, desperate, you feel a whole range of negative and positive emotions. And your partner in the situation, you know, thinks they might come home to find you crying or might come home to find you overwhelmed. But no, but who thinks they're going to come home to find their, their partner outside having attempted suicide with three dead children, two dead children, one eventually succumbs to the, the injuries. So again, short of lots of documentation that he was aware of the severity and the risk of her being alone with the children, he's not culpable. No. And again, he was only gone 25 minutes. Look, and I'm not even putting a judgment on, oh, well, had he been gone for hours, but he went to grab dinner for everyone. And look, let's be reasonable. He may have also needed a moment outside that home. Sure. It's like, I will, you know, forget DoorDash. I am going to go pick this up because I need a few minutes of calm in the car, pick up the food because I need to be my best self to walk back in to the situation that I am living right now. Sure. You know, and also it's so it's very easy for us, general public, whether you're an expert or not, to say what could have, what should have, what, you know, 
Um, I think it's like you described. It's a very reasonable circumstance for one parent to want to leave the house and even want to leave the house when there's three yes. little kids. Yes. Um, for a respite to get the dinner. On the one hand, I assume he thought he was doing a really nice thing, getting dinner, taking care of the needs of the family in that way. It was a quick trip. Um, I, you know, I don't, again, short of lots of documentation that he was aware of the risk level presented in that house. There is no reason to ex- to think he should be culpable. Yeah. But, but I do want to deal with the one last little piece about, you know, it is also normal. The person who wrote like uh, the, the message that you're referring to, sometimes yeah. when I've done your shows, I'll look at some of your viewers' responses and, you know, whether they like what I say or you say, they like you a lot more than me usually. No, they, they, lo- they really enjoy you, Tracy, because you give context to cases and help them. Everyone, what I love about this program and what I love about our strong community on YouTube, yeah, y'all have great, strong opinions. They do. Yeah. And that's what I was going to say. Whether or not the, the opinion on whether or not one of the viewers says that criminologist is full of it or she hit the nail on the head, what I'm always impressed about is how deeply people think about social issues. In, the, in this case of your show, that social issue is crime. Yeah. And, and it's also a sign of intelligence. Listen, we're, our brains are working. Why did this happen? Who did this? This is critical analysis. And so, you know, every, sure, put out the comments, you know, let those wheels turn. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's only the few people, not including myself, I might be an expert in general, but not on this case, who actually get into the case, unpack the case and have the details that see it a little bit more clearly. And so we'll be waiting for that when the prosecutor moves forward or when the case records become public. But it takes a long time. And in the meantime, we're left with all of these layers of questions. Yes. And everyone, it's a tragedy for everyone. This poor father has just lost his entire family. He's for sure lost his wife in this process. So he's left alone. I mean, he he has lost everything in his life. That's why I said at the very top, what does justice look like here? The community will make that determination, but the community is suffering. Everyone is suffering here. And you know what's so hard about trying to pontificate or you know, unpack the layers so we can get closer to whatever this concept of justice means. Listen, we don't have a lot of data or a lot of um, case history to go on. Um, For better or, you know, luckily, in terms of filicide, there's only about five, depending on the type that we're talking about, but something like this where it's a homicide, where there's an overt act of aggression, there's only about 450 to 500 a year. Now, I say only the criminologist in me says only because it's a low number in regards to the rest of the homicide cases that come through. Obviously, one is too many, especially when we're talking about children. But, you know, I don't know how to, where's the justice? We don't have a lot of cases to review, to present best practices off of. And also in cases of filicide, they are, the variables are so numerous you know, for one, fa- you know, for one person, it's mental illness, for one person, it's control, for one person, it's shame, for one, there are so many factors that go into a parent killing a child, that it's really hard for any expert to put forth a best practices, here's how you handle the situation. Yeah. Because 
we just we just can't do it. There's not enough cases a year to evaluate in those terms. And the reasons are so varied that it is really hard to come up with a consensus. Yes, yes. Well, a GoFundMe account has been set up to support Patrick Clancy. It's raised almost a million dollars. The money will reportedly be used for medical bills for Mm -hmm. his wife, the funeral expenses. They have three babies they have to bury and legal assistance for her defense in this case. Very complicated, very complicated set of emotions around this. Lindsay Clancy is expected to be arraigned on murder charges following her recovery from the hospital. First-degree murder carries an automatic life sentence in Massachusetts. We'll be watching this case. Our next case is out of San Mateo County in California, where a father is accused of intentionally driving his car off a cliff along the Pacific Ocean. His wife and his two children were inside the car. Honestly, it's a miracle that anyone survives, Mm -hmm. especially when you look at this video. And for those of you who are listening, I will be describing everything. Now, I think context is very important as to where this happened. So the car went off along an area of Pacific Coast Highway near Pacifica and Half Moon Bay that's called Devil's Slide. It is one of the most treacherous parts of highway. It's been closed numerous times over the years because of slides, rocks. It's mm-hmm. just horrible. And in 2013, the road was actually closed for a really long time and then a tunnel was built. Mm-hmm. So then you would leave the rockiest part of Devil's Slide as kind of like a park for visitors, if you will. And according to the San Francisco Chronicle, there have been nearly 30 deaths and 10 rescues between 1990 and two, 2021. Okay, it is dangerous. I used to be a reporter in San Francisco working for KGO Television. I can assure you, driving the original part of Devil's Slide, I have never been so nervous in my life. Because obviously when I was sent there as a reporter, it's because it was sliding, it was raining, the fog is horrible. I've never been so scared, honestly. And I'm not, and I love to drive windy roads. You can find me any day on Mulholland Drive enjoying it because I, I, I love it, but this scares me. So here's what's important, why I'm, I'm going on and on about Devil's Slide. Because when the original call came in, it's no one was at all surprised that a car went off the cliff. These things happen. It happens there. The question is how the investigation changed as soon as they were rescued and in the first 24 hours. That is what I find very interesting in this case, along with motivation here. I mean, a father? The man is a physician, obviously educated, you know, in the first case with a mom with postpartum, she was a nurse. These are people who work to help and save other people. Yet in these two cases that we're talking about, Tracy, these helpers, these savers of life are charged with killing other, trying to kill other people. Yeah. Anna, this is, this is like criminology class day one. When I set the stage to talk about human nature, like I, wouldn't it be great if life was like a, you know, kids cartoon in which there was a definitive bad guy and a definitive good guy and everybody kept their role throughout the whole movie and the good guy defeats the bad guy. The problem with human nature is it's not so cut and dry. Most of us do good and bad things every day. Luckily, most of us will never take the life of another human being, making it hard for us to reconcile 
this kind of pull and push and pull inside of us. Your second, the second case we're reviewing today with um, Dharmesh Patel, same thing, physician, probably did a lot of good in his life. And, you know, why do we know him? Do we know him for saving patients? Do we know him for a medical breakthrough? No, we know him for driving a Tesla off of a cliff and attempting to kill himself and his family. And this is the stuff that makes your show and the study of crime so fascinating. How do people, how, how are we both have this potential to do such good and such evil all at the same time? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the, the car plunged 250 feet onto the rocks below. It literally hit the rocks. And we're going to show you that video just a few feet from the Pacific Ocean. It could have plunged into the ocean, depending on how it flew off the cliff. Mm -hmm. So the father here is 41-year-old Darmish Patel. And he's been charged with three counts of attempted murder. He is accused of trying to kill his wife, Nia, who's also 41, and their seven-year-old daughter and their four-year-old son. Okay, once again, this is a family who lives on a very nice tree-lined street at the end of a cul-de-sac in Pasadena, California. Pasadena, California, you know, is kind of like the Beverly Hills of the San Gabriel Valley. It's known for the Rose Parade, the Rose Bowl. It's a very nice place with really big stately homes, okay? And this is where they lived. He was a radiologist at Providence Holy Cross Medical Center. Neighbors described the Patels as, quote, the ideal neighbors. They even had matching Teslas in the driveway. They were clearly a successful family. The couple was well-liked by the neighbors. The, the couple used to go for morning runs together, and they used to play with the kids in the yard. This is a family who made cookies and delivered them to the neighbors. In fact, right before Christmas, they dropped off gifts to the neighbors before the family took off to Northern California on their holiday trip on December 24th. And this, this incident happened during their, you know, their holiday trip. It's, it's so frightening. The whole, the whole thing is unbelievable. So this happened on January 2nd. And the reason we're still talking about it is because there've been a lot of developments in this case. So it, the, the highway patrol gets a call, the California highway patrol, along with the San Mateo County Sheriff's department and the U S coast guard. Everyone responds to a car off the cliff car filled with a family, right? Now, the initial response was, you're treating this as an emergency and presumably an accident, given that it happened at Devil's Slide. Now, we're going to show you this video that is unbelievable. This was released by the California Highway Patrol. And this video, for those of you who are listening and aren't watching, <laughs> They had to use a helicopter to rescue everyone in that car. So what you're going to see is the helicopter is hovering mm -hmm. above where the car is. It's so precarious. You could see how it's nearly impossible to reach them. Mm -hmm. So you have one rescuer who goes down in a basket, right? You have another rescuer who's literally standing outside the helicopter, but on the helicopter, controlling the rope down. And then each 
of the survivors of the car, the passengers, each one must be placed in a bank in a basket, pulled up into the helicopter, which is hovering over this cliff, then flown a very short distance to just the other side, where is more that park area where uh-huh. the ambulances are waiting and then everyone's taken to the hospital. Okay. That is what first responders had to deal with. I mean, mm-hmm. it's unbelievably a dramatic rescue in mm-hmm. California. All right. So now you understand how hard it was to get everyone out. Now mm-hmm. you get that the initial thought is like, oh my God, we have a car over the side of the cliff. We have to rescue everyone. What a miracle. Everyone survives. And the little boy, he only had a few bruises. God bless him, right? A, a miracle everyone survives. Okay, the most serious of the injuries were for Darmish Patel and his wife. Okay, now, everyone, I, again, it's so important. Everyone's thinking this is an emergency. We have to deal with this. But what happens the minute the wife has an opportunity to tell the first responders, the ambulance workers, anyone. She screams at them and says, he tried to kill us. He tried to kill us. She tells, and several of them heard this, that the husband intentionally drove the car off the cliff and that he tried Mm -hmm. to kill them. So this changes the investigation, Tracy. This changes the, the, the investigation entirely. Now you have a survivor telling you this is no accident. So then the CHP review the cameras in the area and they review the site where the car went off. No Mm -hmm. skid marks. Uh, Witnesses say that they didn't see brake lights. The cameras confirm no brake lights. So what does that tell you? There's no swerving. There's no skid marks. There's no brake. It's now sounding like what the wife has just said, might very well be accurate. Sure. So now you have forensic evidence corroborating the eyewitness testimony. And so, you know, this is going to be very difficult for him to explain. I I do want to point out something there. It's very, it's, I don't know if you did this purposefully, but there are so many striking similarities between the cases as you describe, right? These kind of suburban uh, health professionals that appear to have these loving families, communities that are rallying around them. But there is one huge difference that for me as a criminologist, my light, right? And of course it is the sex of the parent involved. We have mm. a father, a male, we have a mother, a female. I don't know if you think, uh, I'll say, I'll give you a little bit of information. Believe it or not, your audience might find this interesting. We don't have a lot of great conclusive data on filicide. Like we know how many children a year are killed. We roughly know who killed them, whether it's the mother or the father, but the numbers aren't as clean as you would think because you have to follow the case through to completion. Um, And so, and oftentimes in the beginning of an investigation, when arrest is made in a typical filicide, they often um, arrest both parties. And so really clean data on filicide other than who the victim is, like the offender data is very difficult for us to get a hold of. Um, but I but I just want to give a little bit of information to kind of flush that out. There's about 500, like somewhere between 430 and 500 over the last few years in which there was a, um, a homicide uh, 
an intentional homicide. There are another probably seven or 800 cases in which there is neglect. There's right. medical neglect food, you know, okay. Absolutely. Um, they're most likely to be killed. Here's something similar in your, in the stories we're talking about today. Um, when they're killed by their parents, about 70% are killed when they're under six years, six or younger. Mm, interesting. So there's something happening with the stress that is associated with very young children. Um, so that's something to keep in mind. And one third of the total group is under one, bringing us back to, are there some sort of temporary psych uh, psychosis that occurs in particular in women after they give birth? Um, so uh, somewhere around 40% of the perpetrators are, are the mothers and 60% are the fathers. With the numbers skewing lower, mothers are more likely to kill when the children are younger very small children and fathers more likely to kill as the child ages. So this is also going to be another factor in this investigation where when a mother kills, we pretty much go to a couple of, you know, reasons as criminologists like postpartum, mental health, um, domestic violence in the family and the mother snaps on the child. When a father kills, the reasoning is different. Um, we look to things like the perpetration of domestic violence and using the death of the child to further control the mother. So when you said the mother immediately, when she had the opportunity screamed, he tried to kill me. Um, it makes me question what was going on, not just in that car ride, but in the dynamics of the family in general. Mm -hmm. So, and again, I have no idea. I didn't read, I don't have the case history other than what the media is reporting. Um, but what I do know from other data and other cases is when fathers kill, it's often associated with a pattern of domestic violence or control, jealousy, et cetera, in the house. It's a little bit different. Well, what's interesting here is this entire tragedy took place inside that car for the, for the moment of this, the totality of this incident. And so you have survivors, which means you have witnesses. So you have the two children and the wife who can tell the authorities exactly what was going on at that time. Was there an argument? Did the children and the mother scream, stop, 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 daddy, what are you doing? All of that will be revealed. What's very interesting is that, remember, this was a big story, huge rescue. By the next day, the California Highway Patrol announced this was no accident. They announced it was intentional. They had no doubts, no doubts about this case. And they would have had the time to corroborate not only the physical evidence with the testimony of the survivors inside that car. So a criminal complaint was obtained by Cron 4 in San Francisco, and it alleges that Patel willfully and deliberately premeditated the murder. This is very important because... We don't know the details of why the authorities believe it's premeditated, therefore planned. He premeditated the murder of his wife and children. Patel was charged with three felony counts of attempted murder for each of the victims in the car with enhancements for domestic violence mm -hmm. and causing great bodily harm. Mm -hmm. The motive in the alleged crime has not been announced. How do you attach domestic violence? Is it because the crime was committed allegedly? committed against the family? 
Yeah, so that's what this premeditation is really going to be an important factor. Are we talking about premeditation like they were in the car for for a car drive, arguing, escalated? He said, "I'm, you know, you know what? I'm not taking this anymore. I'm going to kill you." Is the premeditation in the 20 minutes leading up to the car ride? Is the premeditation months of abuse in the household, culminating in this um, horrific car ride? Um, the, whatever the testimony that those children and that mother gave must, um, you know, re- relate. But the domestic violence, I have to assume that it is because there's a pattern. I, mm-hmm. I cannot think of a case that I have ever worked or ever researched in which there was an immediate snap and the charge of domestic violence or the, the notion of domestic violence gets mentioned. It's generally been because there's a pattern of repeated history and the um, you know use of lethal force was the um, culminating factor. So I'm going to hedge my bets on the fact that there is a history for them to contemplate domestic violence. I've never seen a case where it's just used because there's a even though there's a family and there's violence, mm-hmm. domestic violence assumes there's a, a pattern, a history. Right. And so the perfect house on the perfect street with the perfect family, as we know, many times things are not as they seem. Mm-hmm. What we see on the outside, we don't always know what's going on on the inside. The San Mateo County District Attorney, Steve Wagstaff, told the LA Times that they are continuing to investigate if, if the crash could have been caused by a mechanical defect or a technical issue. Because obviously, if you're going to go forward with this case, you need to know, because that could be part of the defense. It's like, I lost control of the car. Yes, we may have been arguing, right? The dad might be able to say, yes, we were arguing. Families always argue. But I didn't intend to do this. I lost control of the car. So the DA says that we are having the car looked at top to bottom. Now, the CHP had previously stated that they do not believe that the Tesla's autopilot feature was a factor in the crash. But because it's a Tesla, that is one of the reasons we're mentioning the make of car, not just because it was a big, fancy, expensive car, but because of some of the controversies with um, Teslas and the whole autopilot um, aspect of it. So clearly investigators are, are going to determine what that, if any, was a part of the problem. So Dharmesh Patel appeared in court for an arraignment on January 30th, mm-hmm. where he did not enter a plea. He's expected to enter his plea on February 9th, and he is currently being held without bond. We will be watching this one as well. Yeah, good. Yeah, and, and I really, I, I commend you for bringing these two cases forward because there are um, factors that you know we can evaluate here. Also, I have to say, I, this is the third time I've been on the show and I really have to applaud you because the, you really put forth a range of victims, you know, from low income, middle income, higher income, various demographic groups. And as a, as a criminologist who also studies race, class and gender issues in the criminal justice system, I really appreciate the holistic lens that you bring to discussion. We don't just focus on the perfect white upper middle class victim. We don't just focus on, you know, crime that occurs solely in poor black and brown neighborhoods. I really appreciate the fact that you're showing victimization 
occurs in various socioeconomic groups to people from various ethnic backgrounds, countries of origin, religious denominations. I appreciate the, the, the full face, uh, all of the faces that you highlight um, because victimization is, you know, there's no monopoly on victimization. As humans, we, we victimize each other and appreciate the full spectrum that you bring to the table. We do put a lot of thought into it. We are a diverse country and sometimes there the i feel i feel that the criminal justice system which should be blind to a person's race to a person's sex to a person's income it does not always feel like justice is blind and some people get preferential treatment and some do not. And that bothers me to my core. And so we try to be very thoughtful and diverse in the spectrum of crimes, in the spectrum of perpetrators and the spectrum of victims. Because at the end of the day, the conversation we have here together is about what is justice and what could it look like? And so we as a diverse community have that conversation together and it's very important to us. And you all also, um, you comment, you message, and you, you know, always asking about what about this case? What about that case? And at the end of the day, these are families and survivors. So thank you, Tracy. I appreciate I appreciate that, Professor. <laughs> You're very welcome. You get an A for today. Thank you. <laughs> okay, everyone, we have a very quick update on a case which you all found so inspiring because it had a happy ending and and I have such sadness to report to you. I want to thank our listener, Robin, who messaged me last night and said, did you see this? And I hadn't. And so I I immediately emailed Will and Tracy and I said, look, I've got to update this case. I, I just have to. This is horrific. Thank you, Robin, for messaging me. Okay. So you may remember this case, everyone. We did it, you know, very recently. It's about twin boys who were kidnapped from Ohio on December 18th. And their mother was making a food delivery pickup and police say that a woman with a very long history of drug abuse and crime stole the car and the babies, the twins, were in the back seat. Massive search for the babies. So this happens in Ohio. The, one of the babies gets left at the airport in the baby's car seat, just abandoned, just like left. So that baby's found, but there's still another twin missing. Mm-hmm. So, and again, this is all unraveling around the holidays. Um, thanks to the quick actions, and you all remember this case, of two best friends who are cousins. These are two women who saw on Facebook, saw the wanted poster for the woman who is alleged to have stolen the car and the babies. And so these two cousins contact the police. Nobody's taking them seriously. They found this woman at a gas station, the alleged kidnapper, selling toys out of a bag. And These two cousins were so smart, they concocted a plan to find the woman, get her in the car, start driving her around, 
calling the cops. Finally, the cops come. They finally arrest her, although they're arguing. Like, the women are saying, that's her, and the cops are like, it's not her. We covered all this in the podcast. What I'm trying to say is that the woman gets arrested, but the baby is still missing, right? For days, the second twin is missing. And so these cousins start backtracking based on everything that the woman said to them, backtracking, backtracking, going everywhere they can until they go to a strip mall. They find the car. And who's in the car? Who's been alone in the car for days but the baby? In the same dirty little um, diaper. Okay, this was a story of inspiration. This was a story about people trying to do the right thing in spite of the police getting in their way and saving a baby, right? I cannot believe this. One month after these babies were reunited, one of the twins has died. One of the babies has died. This Sunday, January 29th, six-month-old Kyer Thomas was found unresponsive in his home. 911 was called. The baby could not be revived. His death is under investigation, according to the Columbus Dispatch. The baby's grandmother put out a statement. She said, quote, tonight we are living a nightmare with the community for a second time in less than a month. I am questioning God. Lord, why? She's asking the community for compassion and prayers. We have no idea what happened. We don't know why the baby died. But my God, I have got to question in a universe where a baby is put through the most traumatic thing about being kidnapped. Then baby is rescued. Baby's reunited with the, with the twin and his parents, and then the baby dies. Oh my God, it's such a tragedy. It is such a tragedy, and I had to share that with all of you because I know so many of you cared about this case. And, and um, this is not the ending anybody wanted. And Tracy, I don't know what happened, but we will keep tabs on it. And um, you can find our whole podcast on this case with the details of everything about reuniting them and finding the babies. It's just the saddest possible outcome. And the only thing we can do, right, Anna, is hug our loved ones, tell our loved ones what they mean to us. And, you know, if, if we're in this line of business where we examine crime and especially crimes against children, we just have to, under, you know, hold on to the fact that those of us who have good, loving, supportive systems around, we're, we're fortunate and, and to not forget that. Um, I'm sorry. This is a case I know you were so excited about having a positive outcome and you want those, you want to hold on to those when we do this kind of work. So it really, I don't know any other word than it sucks when you think you have a good case with a good outcome and it's not. Just devastating, devastating for everyone. So we will also follow this case closely. It is time for our comment section. These are the crime cases that you all are talking about on social media. Here's our producer, Will Updike. Hey, Will. Hey, Anna, great to see you again, Tracy. Hi, Will. So this week we have an abnormal reaction to an inconvenient situation. This case comes out of Naples, Florida, where a 35-year-old man was arrested after he allegedly pulled out a gun while waiting for his food because the order wasn't ready when he showed up. Okay. Oh, yeah. um, so 
this, like the arrest just happened this month, but the case actually, the incident dates back to August, where according to charging documents, Matthew Davis, the suspect here, went to Wingstop with his girlfriend after submitting an online order. That order, pay attention to the timeline here. Uh, the, that order was supposed to be ready at 8.58 p.m. Davis and his girlfriend go to the restaurant at 9.40 p.m. He was oh, very unha- come on, 9.40. You he know, was- <laughs> can't they tell time? Those wings are cold and soggy. <laughs> uh, so he was unhappy that this order wasn't ready for, you know, 42 minutes. I, you can understand it. No, I cannot understand it. It's his own freaking fault. They also will just it give. It was ready. It was ready at 8.58. Exactly. And they, they gave it to someone else. Yes. <laughs> so he has to wait longer. Surveillance video shows him sitting and waiting for the order. But as time, you know, goes on. He gets more and more agitated, you know, and and employees are starting to notice that he's getting really angry. He's like kind of pacing around Um, and, you know, the manager doing their best to intervene. They, you know, there's only so much you can do. They offer him a a free drink, you know, tell him to help himself to any drinks at the fountain. No charge, you know, Uh, so they're trying to do something here at 9.55 p.m. Now, still less than an hour than the order has been placed to be fair to Wingstop. His agitation peaks, this is the way that it said in the charging documents, when he learned his fast food was gonna require even more time. So now he's getting confrontational with the employees. He tells he tells the employees that he's going to get his strap or gun. Uh, oh boy. <laughs> and he, he allegedly said, they're going to see that I'm not playing. Um, and, and just for a note, this is a, this is a large man, white dude, uh, very wispy blonde mustache. So such blonde eyebrows that you can't really even see them. Very long hair. Uh, anyways, uh, so at this point, he stood up. Uh, he's getting in the face of the employees. His girlfriend, who is with him this whole time, is trying to calm him down. But he goes back to his car, which was a white van. He retrieves a gun and he starts walking back towards this wing stop with his gun in hand. His girlfriend is is trying to get him to put the gun away, trying to get him to stop. Uh, he's going around. And so, you know, the employees are nervous. They can see him through the door with this gun in hand. And then things get even a little bit more complicated where a couple and their four year old child left an ice cream shop. My understanding is that it's kind of like in the, they share a parking lot with this wing stop uh, at the same time that, that Davis is out there with his gun. Um, and, you know, the witnesses are like, this guy looks serious. It was apparently scary enough that the, you know, both of the, this couple and the child ran to their car for safety. They said that they were in fear, even though the, you know, the suspect here did not say anything to him. Finally, his girlfriend is able to, to get him to return to this van. Uh, she's able to calm him down. She goes back inside, finally retrieves the order. Now, he was just arrested uh, on on January 25th. I, I don't know what all went into, you know, sort of investigating this incident, um, but he voluntarily came into an interview with detectives for this. Uh, and he told detectives that his it, like that the gun was unloaded uh, and his intention was just to intimidate, uh, but he did not intend to harm anybody. And then just as a weird side note, he said he was also stressed out because his mother had passed away a few weeks prior to the incident, mm. um, which, you know, I feel for the loss. Uh, yeah, I, I we're not our best compile. when these things happen, but it's how we handle these situations, right? Yes, yes. So, I, I mean, as I said, he voluntarily like came into investigators. They, they they ended up charging him with two counts of assault with a deadly weapon. Uh, he did bond out the next day. So it's still kind of unclear the the the, uh, the future of this. Weird that, um, all, like, 
three of our cases that we've mentioned today involve takeout food. I, I don't want to put yes. you on the spot, Tracy, but are there yes. any kind of crime statistics yes. on stuff going on at, at fast food yes. restaurants? Especially the Waffle House. Things always happen at the Waffle House. I mean, you have got to work there with like body armor. <laughs> that, the, the, the woman died like with the chair that was recently on social media. when an, Oh my when God, a, was she amazing? Customer throws a chair at her is so wild. Yeah, Will, you just threw so much at me after we had this high and low like discussion about tragedy. There's a van, there's wispy eyebrows. I'm not really sure how I'm supposed to make sense. The only thing I could say is, yes, fast food locations are a more um, high crime prone because there's a quick uh, there's lots of cash. So we don't mm. generally think about it in terms of like there's going to be a murder, but there's lots of robberies. Um so because of the exchange of cash. But again, I'm still stuck on the wispy eyebrows. I'm not sure I can move on from that. So. There's a lot going on there. But I think what we see a lot in these fast food places are people who get very agitated at the workers. Either the, they miss the sauce on the side. Oh my goodness. How many cases involve the fact that they didn't include the sauce with the freaking McNuggets or whatever? And then how many cases then involve these this waiting and this agitation about the order? I, it's just, it's like a perfect storm of disaster. Well, and hunger does already does weird yes. thing to people. Yes. yes, hangries. They're all hangry people. Hangry, hangry. <laughs> uh, but, it works for toddlers as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but we got a lot of great comments on this one. Unfortunately, Wingstop somehow caught a bunch of strays. Uh, so Air Fried Fashion said, if you've been to Wingstop more than once, you won't find his crime that unreasonable. Um, <laughs> I gotta be honest, I love Wingstop. I always just order delivery. Mm-hmm. Yes. Andrew said, that's the best commercial Wingstop could ask for. So good, you'll commit felonies to get it. Um, <laughs> WTVN uh, is wondering about the adaptation of this. Uh, they said, if they ever make a movie, I want Jack Black to play Wingstop Man. Uh, oh, that's guy, good. He, like, this guy doesn't have like the jolly nature of like a Jack Black, okay. but it, it would be really funny. It, like, hard to tell, too. Like, is he the hero? Is he like, is he the victim? Is he a villain? I'm thinking like your description. I'm thinking like Hulk Hogan, like this kind of. Yes. Uh, yes. Really? And he okay. is like he is a 300 pound man. One, that's... according to one police report. I'm thinking that's Harvey Keitel, you know, angry. <laughs> yeah. Hurley said, this is the guy I always imagine I'm arguing with on Reddit. Uh, which, yes, uh, that's uh, definitely that kind of guy. Lunatic said, and he's still wingless to this day, uh, um, which I love. Brutal. I love. I, it is kind of an, an interesting side note that the girlfriend did ultimately go back and, and get the wings, uh, according to reports. So, um, you know, and Feed ended the up beast. with some wings. Feed the beast. Yeah, <laughs> and <laughs> ended up in jail like four months later. Um, but yeah, that is going to do it for today's comment section. I want to let people know we are reaching out to some of our uh, commenters on YouTube. Now, unfortunately, like there's a little bit of a snare in that I can't direct message you on YouTube. So I've been sending out a... <laughs> I've been sending out a link to a Google form, um, which you can put in your preferred contact address. Now, don't be worried. I'm not going to put you on any like list or anything. This is just going to be used to reach out. We'd love to feature you on the show. Um, so, you know, I, I just don't want your information to have to be public on YouTube or anything. So if you just fill that out, um, we will get to you. <laughs> 
Also, um, we're still, uh, we would love to know how you watch, how you listen uh, to the show. Um, so you can go ahead and share those with us on Instagram. Uh, don't forget to tag us. Uh, and I, I think that'll do it for today's comment section. Do we so have much more drama with trying to get you all on the show. Okay. I know, it, this I'm, is I'm all really like, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> like Will and I hatched this plot without anyone's approval. Then we had to have a meeting with the executives. And then it's so so complicated and I just want you guys to join us on the podcast and we have become a bureaucracy it's we're gonna have like five million more subscribers by the time we figure this out so <laughs> like we are making moves we are trying to make it happen I apologize that it's 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 taking longer than I expected oh this is crazy and then the thing about tagging yeah please tag us in fact two of you uh, messaged me this week on Instagram and I just love your comments. So I'm just going to share them. And um, I just wish I had the visuals to go with this. So Kinley Dawson on Instagram said that they just discovered the podcast and that they like to listen while doing farm chores and based on the photos on your Instagram, that is a beautiful farm. You have there's snow everywhere. I was just oh, like, that's wow, incredible. isn't that incredible? And then Shazdum um, also said on Instagram that they are a Marine Corps drill instructor. I love this. <laughs> and that when they're on break, they like, and they're driving, they like to listen to the podcast. I find you all fascinating. I love to hear how you all listen or watch and why you're all beautiful. It's, I love it. It's so much fun. The tag on Instagram, just so everybody knows too, is at Crime Watch Daily. Right. It's but still if you have the old tag. Oh, and that's really complicated. And I've explained it a million times. Multiple owners of the name and a tie to the show, but the podcast. We're getting really in the weeds here. I know. Well, it's really time to say goodbye we, to we, this we, thing. Okay. All right. So that's going to do it for today's <laughs> comment section. Thank you so much. Uh, always great to see you. I'll see you next week. I'm headed to uh, Wingstop for both lunch and research, apparently. <laughs> there you go. That's my problem. I do get stuck in. <laughs> in the weeds. But that's why I love the details of crime. I can't help yeah. myself. I need to get very down to the basics. And Will's like, okay, you've gone too far now. I don't blame him. All right. So Professor Tracy, where can people find you on social media or, yeah, you know, you all can, that good it, stuff? You can Google me and you can get links to my work at the University of New Haven's website. Um, I don't have, uh, I don't have social media. I'm, my kids are telling me I got to work on it. Anna. I'm so out of touch. They're right. Your kids are right. Yes. Come on. You're in a classroom with young people every day, right? We need to communicate the way the young, again, I sound like the old grandma. We oh. need to communicate with the young people the way they communicate. <laughs> okay. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. And what are you teaching this semester? This semester, I'm teaching victims and victimization. Ooh. I wrote the textbook for the course, so I like teaching it. Wow. And I am teaching criminology. I always teach criminology. That's one of my favorites. Yeah. Ooh, you know, we should have had you on for those, the Idaho college murders, because the oh. suspect is a criminology student. He, We've yes. been following that case, and that's yeah. very interesting. Very interesting. Very yeah. interesting. Okay. Um, you all can find me at Anna G News, Anna with one N. I sometimes talk about crime, but most of the time I just talk about other stuff because I need a break from the heaviness of this program. Um, you can catch this episode and any other episode of our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. 
Also, sign up to receive our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. Until next week, this is True Crime Daily, the podcast. And as we always say, don't do crime. Don't do crime.